0: Turn to Titus chapter 1. We're going to start in the book of Titus. We finished 1 Timothy, moved on to 2 Timothy. Now we're into Titus. We're teaching on the pastoral epistles, one chapter at a time. We decided to do this 10, 11, 12 weeks ago because uh, we want to look behind the scenes at the pastoral ministry. Timothy, Timothy, and Titus are called pastoral epistles because they're written by the Apostle Paul to pastors about pastoring local churches. And though there is doctrine for laity in there, it is primarily, if we were to take a contextual hermeneutic, the context, the person it's written to is a pastor concerning pastoring. Now, a lot of things when you read these aren't going to make sense to you because you're not a pastor, you're a laity. But that's like when our kids want to interrupt and ask questions, sweetie, these are two adults talking. You're a child. you're not going to understand this. Some of these things that we're going to look at seem really harsh, but you need to know these are the harsh realities of ministry. And this is why they're recorded for us, so we can see what ministry really looks like. I'm thankful to have it as a pastor, so I know I'm not alone and that this is really what it looks like behind the scenes. Now, I know in the modern church age, everything is like you know puppy dogs and dancing through lilies and just cotton candy and community outreach that looks like a bunch of lies and carnivals. But the reality is we're dealing with an eternity with God or an eternity among demons. We're dealing with the devil that hates people. We're dealing with perversion deviancy. We're dealing with corrupt individuals, morally abject individuals, and those that are desperate for Jesus. What we're dealing with is not a game. What we're dealing with is severe reality, and there is an eternal good, and there is an eternal wicked. And eternity lasts forever, no matter where you are, in heaven or in hell. And I really am offended by the way the American minister has presented the gospel as a game. Some of these guys need to quit and go sell cars. Yes, sir. They don't have any business in the pulpit because they're not helping anybody but their own ego. Yes, sir. So let's look at what real ministry looks like yeah. as inspired by the Holy Ghost. Yeah. Titus chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant of God not a motivational speaker, not a life coach. I reject that with every bit of my heart. I reject, I want you guys to up and abandon me if I ever call myself a coach. God forbid I ever have to coach my kids' teams. I'll leave that to other dads in the community. I got too many other things to do. My wife, every soccer season, honey, are you sure you don't want to coach? I am 100% sure I don't want to coach. I don't want to do this. I will go support, but no, I'm not coaching. I got other things to do. Uh, It's really disgusting, in my opinion. You can disagree. Uh, So many great ministers are now taking upon themselves the title of life coach. What's wrong with gospel minister? What's wrong with servant? What's wrong with apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher? Except that, you know, to be called a pastor kind of brings a little bit of controversy and a little bit of persecution in this nation anymore. So life coach just is a little bit more palatable when you have a weak ego. And so when my friends start putting that on their business cards or on their Facebook pages, I just think, bless your heart, I'm never picking you for spiritual dodgeball because you're a sissy. Amen. Paul is servant. So that's what we are first and foremost. We, uh, you know, I know it's not very politically correct, but the biblical word is slave. Paul, <clears throat> a slave of God. And then here's his ministry title an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect. So there's a faith that is available to you and I. Galatians chapter 2 tells us the same, that the life that we now live in the flesh, we live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So whatever you're called to do in life, you can do it because you don't do it by yourself. You do it according to the faith of the Son of God. And it is the same faith that belongs to God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. So he acknowledged truth. He became godly. That allowed him to become an apostle. He said that he was called, and after a due order, God counted him worthy and put him in the ministry. Ministry is an earned position. You're called, but many are called, few are chosen. And Just because you're called doesn't mean you get selected to come up higher. Paul did demonstrate to that in the Corinthian epistle that when, when he was found faithful, He was put into the ministry. It's one thing to wave a piece of paper that says, look, I'm invited to ministry. It's another thing to pull back your your coat and say, and I have the authorization now. Many are called, few are chosen. Verse two, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Who did he make the promise to? But in Christ, there was nobody there. But hath in due times... That is, in the present time, manifested his word through preaching. This is why we reject entertainment in the pulpit. This is why we reject showmanship in the pulpit. The Bible says that God hath chosen through the foolishness of preaching to save souls. Here it says he's manifested eternal life uh, through preaching his word. His word hath in due times manifested his word through preaching. This is what we focus on. The biblical formula from Genesis to Revelation is what we would call worship and word. Word and worship. Worship has many forms. It's offerings, it's sacrifices, it's prayers, that can be worship. And then there's always the delivery of the word of God, especially when the law was given to Moses and that word, that law was read regularly but they had sacrifices and worship regularly. That's the formula to our walk with God. Word and worship, worship and word. Not smoke machine, not concert, not jam session. Word and worship. I'm not against these things if it's an outreach. I understand having a concert that's an outreach. I understand having like a drama production like Hell's Gates. Manda, didn't you go to one of those scared the hell out of you? I'm not trying to cuss. It's the whole purpose when you were in high school or something. Anybody familiar with those Hell's, uh, whatever they're called, Hell's Gates? And a lot of churches back in the 90s and 2000s would put on these very intense productions. You'd invite everybody. And it was a play, except it was always about four kids in a car and they crash and they go to hell. And and then they give an altar call and everybody runs, even the deacons run. I'm not even sure I'm saved. (laughs) I'm not against that, but that's not regular service. That's a production for an outreach. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, One of the famous missionaries Lester Sumrall was friends with ended up having revival in Indonesia. Uh, He was having trouble preaching the gospel in their terms, but they enjoyed a puppetry, which was a very cultural thing, a shadow puppetry. He learned how to do it and he would preach the gospel on the streets using a street vendor shadow puppet technique and won thousands to Christ. Evangelistic. You don't disciple that way, but he could present the gospel using these Indonesian puppets which they still use today. You can buy them, and they're kind of fancy collector things. He's manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. So Paul gives his introduction, his pedigree. He sets the stage for why we're doing this. It'd probably be good for a lot of seeker churches to open their service this way and then ask themselves, all right, does our light show fit now? is the smoke really going to contribute anything now? Maybe, honey, you should go put on some clothes and cover up all that junk, all that metal and all that ink. I don't know, just read three verses and now I feel like the holiness of God is more important than the production of an MTV generation. So then he changes up, because now we know who it's written to. To Titus, my own son after the common faith. Now, it was originally called the faith of God's elect, but the fact that now it's called the common faith would seem to say it's available to anybody who wants it. My own son, and we know Titus and Timothy were Paul's closest sons in the faith, though he did have multiple sons in the faith. He said, my own son, after the common faith, not my biological son, but my spiritual son, Grace, mercy, and peace. A couple of the modern translations leave out mercy because there are some ancient manuscripts that don't have that word. But we pointed out a couple weeks ago that all three of the pastoral epistles begin their greeting to the pastor by including mercy. Paul in all of his epistles to the churches say grace and and peace, but to the pastors he says, mercy. Why? You're going to need it. Why? You ever been bit by a hundred sheep at once? Why would you want a megachurch? That's just a thousand more mouths biting at you. Amen. A thousand more hooves slandering you on Facebook, Instagram, or whatever. <laughs> trippity-trop, trippity-trop. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. There's our formal introduction. So now we have the cause of this epistle. He doesn't just start off by saying, what's up? What's <laughs> up? It's really amazing how informal we've become. We are very flippant, but he has this long four-verse introduction, and now he gets to the heart of it. For this cause left I thee in Crete. Now, if you have been here for the last 10 or 12 weeks where we've looked at Timothy and Timothy, we we said we were going to contrast Timothy with Titus, so Timothy's a son in the faith, and he says, for this reason, I adjured thee. I requested that, that you would stay behind and that you would help the Bel Air church, that is the Ephesus church. Paul tells Titus, this is the reason I left you behind. (laughs) We can already see Titus is a different kind of kid. And if you can consider all that we taught in the last couple weeks, the Ephesians church is considered Paul's most mature church. There's no real correction in the Ephesian epistle, not till you get to Revelation chapter two, then the micro epistle threatens to shut them down. That you're dealing with a very mature church that really just needs some babysitting to some degree. Now, there are some assignments given to Paul, excuse me, given by Paul to Timothy and First Timothy, but we saw all the encouragement throughout first and second Timothy and all these exhortations to endure. It's gonna be okay, don't be ashamed. It's it's almost like an epistle or two epistles that are Mickey Mouse gloves. And again, we, we don't want to diminish Timothy because he didn't quit. He, he made he made the cutoff. He made the cutoff in the ministry. He, he's taking a little bit more wind into his sails than maybe others require, but he hasn't quit. And he's been with Paul every step of the way, even to the end of Paul's life. But what we do see with Titus is he doesn't require any of that. Right. This dude is tough as nails. And for whatever reason, uh, he gets left at Crete. Now, if The Ephesus church is the most mature, posh, bel-air, sophisticated. Crete is the other end of the spectrum. We're talking about Lord of the Flies and not Beelzebub. We're talking about an island nation of vagabonds, rapscallions, heathens. And if it wasn't for all the pagans that were problems, now you have the Judaizers are there too. So keep that in mind because this becomes a major theme in the opening chapter of this Epistle. For this cause left I thee in Crete. Anybody reading this would go, "Ooh, Crete. Yikes. I would not dare try to equate that to any place in America because it would come across as racist, whether you're dealing with Crossville (laughs) or Compton. But if you can think as rough as possible, that's Crete. I left you there. I didn't encourage you. I didn't adjure thee. I didn't ask you. I just left you. I left you in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting. History tells us, church history uh, tells us, that Paul did not get to minister there very long, so he did not get to complete his apostolic work before he had to move on. What it looks to from the book of Acts is maybe he got to establish a few churches while his prison ship was marooned there during a storm. Uh, Euclidon, I think was the name of the storm. And so that appears to be when he was able to pioneer a very quick work there. But now he needs to go back and establish things. So he leaves Titus there and says, sit, boo-boo. Now fix it. And the man needs no other help. He knows exactly what to do. That's a tough dude. This should also encourage us. That lets us know there's a work for every one of us. Titus would have been too much for Ephesus. Crete would have been too much for Timothy. No matter who you are or what your disposition is, there's still a work for you, and God will customize that work. He'll find a place for you. And no place is more important than the other. And I don't think any is more praiseworthy than the other because it's all a work that needs to be done. Every bit of it is necessary and critical. He said, I left you there that you should set in order the things which are wanting or the things that are inferior or destitute, which lets us know that not every work is completed. Not every work is to the utmost capacity before you have to move on in ministry, uh, that sometimes things have to be left undone, especially apostles. Uh, biblical New Testament apostles, they, they tend to be vagabonds in that they don't stay too in any one place too long. They, they have an anointing to get something up and running And then they have to turn it over and move on to the next thing, depending on the measure of the apostolic gifting. One of the things we see that is lacking in the Cretan church, and this is a massive island over 150 feet, 150 miles in diameter, one way, I think 30-something miles, it's off the coast of Greece, 30 miles wide. So it's a pretty big island nation. He said, I I want you to ordain elders in every city. So that lets us know there's also going to be a church in every city, as should be the case. Now, nowadays, we have you know, uh, 50, 60 churches in Cookville or 100 churches in Cookville or who knows how many. I, the Baptists alone have 50 in their district in this area, uh, over 50. I think it's 58. I could be wrong there. Uh, but in this day, it's the infant church. You have one church per city, and if it's got 30 people, you're doing pretty good. He said, I want you to ordain elders. So he trusts this pastor to ordain elders. This is critical because it means that pastors ordain elders. Elders don't ordain pastors. Paul is the apostle. We might say bishop, but he's about to talk about what elder bishops look like. So he's not really the bishop though. That's another semantical argument for another time. He's about to tell them in ordaining elders, these are the criteria. And this is uh, this is what needs to happen in a local church. This passage here ministered to me 13, 14 years ago when we didn't have ordained elders. And the Lord spoke that to me very strongly. Without elders in your church, things are wanting, things are inferior. Your, and he, I think the way, because I looked it up in the Greek, I understood it, him to say to me by the Spirit of God that the, your church is inferior without elders. And I thought, well, we need to ordain some elders in because I don't want to be inferior in anything. Uh, hopefully you're that way too. If you know there's anything inferior about you, do you want it to stay inferior? If you can fix it, would you not, should you not fix it? I don't think any of us want to just brag about inferiority. If it's in your power to fix it, if God's showing you to fix it, why would you not fix it? Why go to Walmart and buy the inferior product? I don't I, money aside, why do it when you don't have to? Why be an inferior Christian when you don't have to? Why be an inferior church when you don't have to? So he he transitions and he says this is the criteria. Now, this is important. And and this is a short chapter, but I think we can burn our whole time with the remaining of these verses. I hear this very carefully. He says this is what an elder should look like. Verse 5 and verse 7 where he talks about elders in verse 5, or presbuteros is the Greek word, and then he talks about bishops in verse 7, or episkopos. This helps us equate the two, that bishops and elders are, are equal in their office, though there are elders that are like, apostles or elders, but there are multiple categories of elders in the New Testament. We're talking about leadership elders here. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, he said, I, an elder which lets us know that apostles are elders, but they are elders that outrank uh, appointed elders. So you have ordained elders. So follow me in the semantics here. There are those that are ordained, ordained ministers, called of God, fivefold ministry. When they're put into ministry, they by default become an elder to the church because they are ministers entrusted by God to step into full-time ministry. But then you also have folks that are not called to the ministry who can aspire and desire the office of of an elder and obtain it. and that, that doesn't mean they'll ever have a ministry calling to be a full-time preacher, but they're still considered an elder. So hopefully you follow it. If you're called to be a minister, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, you can't want that. It either is or it isn't. Or you can be laity and desire to be a helper, elder in the local church and aspire to that, and we all should. But just because you aspire to be a congregational elder doesn't mean you'll ever be in the full-time ministry as a minister of the gospel, according to Ephesians 4. So hopefully you follow all that. That's more of a government's teaching than it is this here. So let's look at these criteria. And though there is some overlap between these criteria and 1 Timothy chapter 3's criteria for the same office, I want us to slow down and look at new sets of traits that appear here that aren't in the Ephesians criteria because you're dealing with two sets of churches. So when you're dealing with different kinds of people you're ministering to, you're going to have a different criteria for those who have to endure. Like if you're going to go fight wars in the Arctic, you need guys that are thick, hot-blooded, who like cold weather because you're going to be in the Arctic. And if you're going to go fight jungle warfare, you don't need those that sweat easily. So you pick your soldiers depending on their skill set. So let's look at these because there is a lot of overlap. If you know 1 Timothy 3 and the qualifications of a bishop elder there, you're going to see some similarities because it's talking about the same office. But we're dealing with two different churches and two different cultures and two different groups of people. So we're, we're having to adjust our criteria based on the needs present or the sin present or the temptations present. All right. Verse 6, if any be blameless. So this is how we look for elders. Bishops, if any be blameless, and that word blameless simply means above reproach. The husband of one wife, this is just like 1 Timothy chapter 3. The husband of one wife means a one woman man. It doesn't mean you've only been married once, because what if you're a widower? Or what if you got uh, born again and your first wife left you because she hated God? You know, so it's not just you, you only have one wife. It's, it's talking no polygamy, obviously, which was a very common practice. So the Greek literally means a one woman man having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. Now, this is interesting because first Timothy does not add the criteria of children not accused of riot or unruly. But this is Timothy's a son in the faith. So you have a lot of variables here that are the same. You have a father in the faith, Paul, addressing two sons, Timothy and Titus, who were pastors over a church of Ephesus and the Church of Crete. And both of them require blameless bishops, one woman bishops who have their households in subjection. Timothy three says. One who rules his own house well, having his children in subjection with all gravity. That's where Paul leaves it for the Ephesians requirements. He adds something special here. Not having children accused of riot or unruly. Now, why is that? Well, Titus is going to pick elders who are Cretan. Because this is their nation. We don't know what, what nationality Titus is. Not that I'm aware of. Not from this epistle. We can safely assume he's not Cretan, so he's a missionary pastor here, but he's going to be picking nationals, those who have been born and raised on Crete. And he needs to see the gospel work so strong in these men that they've even begun to disciple their children in the gospel so that their children are not accused of being riotous or unruly. What's the reputation of all Cretans? They are riotous and unruly. So here's the powerful point that we need to catch. If you're going to be a leader in a good church, not even an excellent one, if you're going to be a leader in a good church, you have to demonstrate that the gospel has made you different than the culture around you. And you've caught it so much, you've raised your kids to be different than the culture around you. Because if you don't believe the gospel enough to instill it in your kids, you'll never help the local church be great. That's why these two words, right and unruly, are added to this eldership criteria. Because Paul is setting Titus over Crete to ordain that which is lacking, that Crete might be a different people. If you jump ahead to chapter uh, verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12, and we'll come back to it here in a minute. Paul quotes the Greek philosopher Epimenides. He says, one of themselves, even a prophet of their own. Now, Epimenides was not a prophet. He was a philosopher. But that gives us insight into what the term prophet meant in that era. I wish charismatics would do more Bible study than running. They don't even run much anymore. They should because they've gotten so fat. Anyway. A prophet of their own. This is quoting Epimenides. This is a famous quote in Greek philosophy. The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. Epimenides said that in the 6th century B.C. Paul says this witness is true. So the Cretans have been this way for 700 years. So what's the purpose of the gospel in coming to Crete? Well, let's change our testimony. But if the elders are the same and their kids demonstrate Cretan behavior rather than kingdom behavior, then they're not good elders and you don't use them as elders. If elders kids look like America, you don't use them, the elders, because obviously they haven't discipled their kids to get the world out of them. I'm very strong on this. Now, some of our American culture is neither here nor there. We're going to be American till the day we die. We're going to overseas. They'll spot you a mile away especially when you open your mouth. But those are pretty neutral cultures. We like hot dogs. We like the American flag. We like fireworks. We like guns. We like blowing up stuff in the backyard. That's more Tennessee than anything. There's certain cultures about America that are neutral, but the wicked things of our culture, they should not be named among our children at all. If they are, you've not put the gospel in them as you should. So once again, we saw this with Timothy We see it here. Family life disqualifies men from leadership. Because who you are at home is who you really are. And if you don't believe this enough to live it at home, you can't be trusted in the congregation of God's people. If you don't believe this enough to instill it in those who you say you would die for, you're not going to lay down your life for a bunch of mediocre sheep who bite at you. So just like Timothy was told, now Titus is being told how we select elders as we look at their home life. So what you do at home is our business. What your marriage looks like is our business. If if you want to be an elder. Now if you don't want to be elder, that's fine. How you raise your kids is our business. But brother Hagen said if you want to offend a Christian, talk about one of three subjects. Talk about their weight, talk about their money, talk about their kids. And I can testify that you touch those three, you'll offend people who say they love you. But we stick with Scripture. So an elder has to be the husband of one wife, a one-woman man, having faithful children, that is committed children, children who are believers, not accused of riot or unruly. And your children can disqualify you. So let's look at what riot and unruly means. Riot means debauchery. The word is azodious, debauchery, dissipation, profligacy, wild extravagance. So dissipation, profligacy, wild extravagance means you're just wasting stuff. But that debauchery, just wasting stuff, you know, going to the bars, going to the clubs. Uh, You know, honestly, even profligacy is wasting money on purses that you don't have the money to spend on the purse. Trying to keep up with the Kardashians is profligacy. Going into debt to keep up with stupid fashion is profligacy because that's not gospel reality. Uh, The unruly... Is uh, It doesn't matter what the Greek word is, but it means undisciplined, disobedient, rebellious, insubordinate. So we see in this word, it's necessary for elder or leadership kids to be disciplined. That doesn't mean spank discipline, though it includes that. It means you're teaching them to live disciplined lives. This is all the more important if you're pastoring and being an elder in Crete, When the worldwide reputation for nearly a millennia is that you guys are none of this. So what that shows is the gospel, if your kids are accused of riot and unruly, then what you're saying is the world is stronger in your household than the gospel is. And if that's the case, we can't use you yet. Go home, get your house straightened out, then come back. And it really is a shame lots of times... Every preacher can be guilty of this if they're not careful. We'll do a better job saving your house than we will saving ours. And I love you, but not like I love my family. And I've had to be warned by by pastors in private for years now and exhorted that, you know, Pastor Chris, you can go to church Sunday and nobody will be there. They'll all abandon you. So why give them your life? And that's the reality. You know, the people, Pastor Chris, that say you love, they love you today will stab you in the back tomorrow, slander you, and hate you, though all you ever did was stay up late and pray for them. So don't give them too much. That's wisdom I've heard for 15, 16 years now from people who've been stabbed in the back by sheep they laid down their life for. And I want you to listen to me very carefully. It has been our experience in this church, in this region, which is the only place I've pastored, but I've, I've learned the spiritual chemistry of this region pretty well, that when there are families or individuals, my wife and I have to dump a lot of our life into, and there's little change made, they're typically not going to, and they will typically end up leaving us. That is an, a, that is an experience and a statement that is probably 95% accurate. It has always been the people we have invested in the most that never make it because they don't give a return on the investment. And they end up leaving because they get tired of being told the same thing over and over again, which is you are carnal and you need to change. So eventually, either they break into God or they break away from God and then we're the target. So you get bit by uh, enough sheep enough times, you just kind of keep your hands in your pocket and you shepherd with your feet. (laughs) There you go, sheep. Yeah. Oh, you want your belly scratched? All right. Yes, all right. All right. Now get on. <laughs> but my children I can do something with. Because God gave them to me. And I love you all, but I'd rather see my kids there in heaven than you. Now, I want to see all of you there. But if I have to choose between you or my kids, I don't even know your middle name. Or your birth date. But my kids, that's something different. All right. So you got to make sure your kids, you you so put the word of God in them, they're never accused of dissipation, wasteful spending, debauchery, phone calls in the middle of a service. It's all right. (laughs) That your kids are not accused of being unruly or undisciplined. You have to discipline them, not ruthlessly, but you keep a trellis on them like you would a vineyard. You keep a tomato plant pole on them. So they grow straight. That you 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 uh, you correct disobedience and you teach them that rebellion. What rebellion will do them? The Bible, the word in the Greek is, is insubordination. They should never be accused of insubordination. Kids make mistakes, yes. Kids go weird sometimes, yes, for a day. But we're talking about a reputation of insubordinate. So we see this heavy emphasis put on children because. The culture will affect the kids if the parents aren't gospel parenting. We're about to see again why it's so important. It's a higher standard for the elders of Crete than it is the elders of Ephesus because the opposition is a lot more hostile. So maybe we judge ourselves. How much do our kids look like America? How much do our kids look like the current culture? Not Christian culture. You know the culture I'm talking about. The non-binary. Weird tattoos, because all tattoos are weird in my opinion. If you have them, no condemnation. Don't go get any new ones. The weird piercings. I mean, like you shouldn't look like you lost a fight with a tackle box. And it punched you in the face five times before you fled. When your hair looks like fruity pebbles. How in the world some preachers let that on the pulpit? I have no idea. (laughs) Nothing says daddy issues like that. You're being judgy. Yep. Absolutely. Every therapist sees that person coming and says, money, 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 money. You walk into that therapist's office with face piercings and pink and turquoise hair. You got daddy issues and you are about to get some counseling. And that man's going to buy a trip to Barbados with your fees. (laughs) And it's always going to come back to daddy issues, either a lack of daddy or an absentee daddy. Have daddy issues, just don't wear it up here. Don't advertise it. (laughs) Verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless. Twice now it says blameless. Twice now. Above reproach. As the steward of God, that word steward of God just means a manager of God's household. Because really as an elder, you're helping to manage God's household. You're helping to manage the resources. You're helping to manage the, the supplies, which are manpower. You're helping to make sure the people are taken care of. And that means you have to be excellent. You don't go to the gym and look for the fattest physical trainer, a personal trainer, and say, I want you to be my coach. You want that guy that looks like he deadlifts 500 pounds of bench press, 350. You want the guy where you can see his abs through his sweatshirt. I want you to be my personal. I don't want pork chop to be my personal trainer. And why do we have so many pork chop elders in the kingdom? How are they going to help the body of Christ? I don't understand why. I I guess pastors are looking for people with a warm pulse who show up twice a month. That's my elder. I got to have a higher standard than that. (laughs) They are managers of God's household, not self willed. Now, self willed means uh, overbearing, intolerant, contemptuous. So if an elder, and and for, for what it's worth, the elder's wife, because she's going to help be an elder, if the elder will add to it, the elder's wife, because we have to call them together because they're going to bear the burden together. If the elder or his wife are overbearing or intolerant, because you've got to be merciful when you deal with church people, because the spectrum of the church is you got the newbies coming in who smell like dope and sex and drugs and and booze and BO and sin. And then you've got the folks you're about to send off to be missionaries and go to seminaries and the Navy and the army. You know, you've got this whole spectrum. You've got to be tolerant of a lot of stuff and be able to see where people are at and not want to kick people out of the church because they're not your ilk. So if you're that, you don't qualify to be an elder. And if your wife's that, she disqualifies you from being an elder. Not self-will, that just me, 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 me. I'm sorry you're inconvenienced by the sinners in our church. God's happy they're here. Why don't you go find some lukewarm, milk toast, Church of Christ somewhere out in the country, and you guys can all be miserable together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about us. We're here to help people. Yeah. We're here to win them to Christ. We're here to help them. Can you imagine, you know, Ariel's a nurse being in the emergency room and they throw up, somebody throws up, they're bleeding everywhere. Like, I'm sorry, we don't do that around here. (laughs) Defecating everywhere, broken bone, pus, gangrene, screaming. I'm sorry, we need peace and quiet in this operating room, this ER. And this is, no, I don't do this. That's not an ER. And a church that isn't a little messy with some new people who are sinful, it's not much of a church. And sometimes it is the church family that runs off church growth because they don't smell the way they think you think they should. They don't look the way you think they should. They don't hug the way you think they should. They don't talk the way you think they should. They the think they should. A couple of years ago, when Dr. Cephas used to work at the Dismas House, which was a transitional housing for inmates, we used to have a lot of folks come here straight out of prison. And it was awesome to watch you guys break nervous. <laughs> People of different colors not lily white Cumberland people. And my favorite is when the guy, and we, we never ask, were they murderers? You'll never know. Were they rapists? You'll never know. Because we, we ran like a don't ask, don't tell policy. It just helped our faith. I don't care what you did, but boy, those tattoos are saying a lot to me, especially the teardrops around your eyes. But that one guy came here and he had a very sexually explicit tattoo right here on his neck. Just vulgar. And he wasn't even in the church five minutes and I had women complaining to me. Have you never read those words? You little religious vagabond. <laughs> uh, you've never read those words. You, you, uh, are you illiterate? Do we need to have like literacy hooked on phonics didn't work for you? Like, you? So what if it's a sex act tattooed on his neck? Are we not glad he's in the house of God? Should you, you ever thought maybe he forgot it's there because he can't read his own neck? He tried twice, but <laughs> fell off the couch and gave up. And when he read it in the, he read it in the mirror. It looked like Hebrew to him. It's like, oh, I guess it's a Christian tattoo. Yeah, cool. I don't know when that happened. Must have been drunk or high what. And people were complaining to me, and I thought for a while it was pretty awesome. God brings somebody to prove how stupid and religious and snobbish, Amen. arrogant self-willed, insolent, intolerant we were. And so after a couple of weeks, I like, well, I should love on some of these old white women. Kind of, you know, they're sheep too. And I guess they pay the bills around here. So, you know, God forbid a little ink on somebody's neck. And the dude was a black guy. So you had to really strain to read the thing. <laughs> it's not like they get white ink on their neck. It's, I mean, you had to get really close to read it. I said, all right. So what we first did was we bought him collared shirts. So at least part of the cuss word was covered up. All right. And that didn't help some of you, or maybe they're all gone now or in hell. I don't know, but they're not here now. But neither is he. So then I finally told Dr. Cephas, I said, Cephas, I don't know. I think I'd ever say this, but tell him I will pay to have that thing tattooed over. To laser it off would cost more money than we could justify spending as a church in those years. But tell him I will happily pay to have that tattooed over. I don't care what he puts on there, you know, just cover it up. And uh, I never had to, he actually came to church like the next service and he'd had it tattooed over. And all the white ladies (sighs) had their world set at peace again because it was all about them and their comfort. So we never use them to be elders because if you're gonna do gospel work, you're gonna get a little uncomfortable and a little dirty. And maybe that's why we don't get any more people like that. We failed that test. I pray God brings us in all sorts of wacky weirdos and sits them in your seat yeah. just to see where you're at. May God do it. Not soon angry. Well, that just means not quick-tempered. Uh Usually wives manifest this at home. They have the restraint for the house of God because they know I'd call them out publicly. But boy, they give their husband both canons to the face point blank. Right before company comes over, then they act like they're the perfect southern comforter because they're cowards and hypocrites. This is really preaching hard tonight. Yeah, so that's why they'll never get to be elders because she is a miserable woman. So how can he ever get to be an elder when she's just soon angry, and he's just kind of whipped with his tail tucked. Yes, mama. Yes, ma'am. Yes, mama. Because if he rocks the boat with her, there won't be sex for months. So she breaks her covenant by drying up the honey hole and depriving him and making herself a fraudulent wife. Man, <laughs> what'd y'all cut? What'd you eat before church tonight? I've got like two and a half pages of notes. i got so much Greek, I'm excited about it. I really want to get to talk about the Judaizers, but no, we're dealing with southern white trash religion. Sweet home Alabama. You know why there's so many A's in Alabama? Because they don't know what the other vowels are down there. (laughs) Same with Tennessee, though. And Mississippi. Oh, there's no help for us Southerners. (laughs) not soon angry, inclined to anger, quick tempered. So you got to have a, these, these are characteristics on the inside of us that we have to be able to endure broken people. The summary is we have to be able to tolerate, have patience for, and have a heart that can see where these folks are coming from. How many of you remember a couple years ago, it was a Wednesday night. We had some guy come in drunker than Cootie Brown, sit over here where mama Eva is. I mean, and just lost. Uh, I don't even think he had shoes on, and he just dirty looked like he crawled out of a ditch, and just smelled of booze. I could smell it, and so I went to meet his hand, shake his hand, and meet him. And when a visitor comes in and sits on the front row, they're either drunk, they they know me, or they're going to be trouble. And he sat right there, and during announcements, he stands up, takes his shirt off, and I remember going, reading my announcements, going, "Sir, <laughs> sir, <laughs> sir, <laughs> <laughs> sir." Oh like, what, what, what like please leave the pants on let, don't let those come off but he was turning his shirt inside out and then i realized he re- he had re- recognized something on his shirt was offensive and he wanted to honor the house of god by turning his offensive shirt inside i don't i don't even remember what it was it was a beer shirt or a rock band shirt but he turned his shirt inside out and then he wasn't in any trouble the rest of the service and I gave the altar call and he was the only one humble enough to reply to and he came down front before I even said well come on down he just came right down turned out he was backslidden Pentecostal we laid hands on him hadn't seen him since may God send us more people like that and may they sit by you like right up on you half of your cushion is under one cheek I want their dirty feet to touch your purse I want you to go home and this part of your body smells like them and Jesus will say, and I sent them to you. Will you be the good Samaritan? You know the story like the back of your hand because you learn it from a flanogram, but you don't live it because it won't stick to your heart. (laughs) It's good preaching tonight, man. Man, I'm feeling really good about myself. Not so good about you guys. Not given to wine, not an overindulger. Now, this is not an endorsement of alcohol for our day. If you know anything about historicity, wine was the primary drink because of the developing nations. Again, it's ancient Rome. It's, we're into the Iron Age. Wine's the only safe thing to drink. And their wine was cut quite a bit with water. It wasn't the 11, 10.5 to 12% alcohol of wine, winos today. So you don't overindulge it because even if it's cut, you could still get drunk drinking it for what it's worth. So keep reading here. Uh, No striker. Well, well, we're back to not violent again. We don't have much of that that I know of, though we do have some domestic issues from time to time. Let me just say, if you hit somebody, you are white trash. White trash hits people. Not talking MMA. We're not talking like boxing at the gym. Like you strike your spouse, you should go to jail. That's white trash. Now, no striker sounds a little politically correct. And some of you don't like it when I call people white trash, but I'm white. It's just part of my privilege. I got the card in my pocket. It stops when I leave this nation because it, it, it's limited. Because it's not really white privilege, it's majority privilege. So when I go to Africa, no, I stick out. I don't have privilege there. I'm just a white guy that everybody points at. But if you strike, you're white trash. If you're black and you strike, you're black trash. Trash knows no color boundary. It's trashy to hit. And the fact that you have to say, I probably wouldn't pick fighters to be elders. That's pretty powerful that he would even have to make that suggestion. Why is that not just assumed? Not violent. Filthy lucre, uh, they, they are not given to filthy lucre. This is a term that just means you don't care how you get money. You just want money. That goes for cheating your time card. If you're a business owner, robbing your employees or robbing your clients, we don't do that. I would much rather lose money and be ethical than be unethical and make extra money. Amen, sir. We don't want to be unethical with money. So if that's the case, you have no business being in leadership, if you're unethical with money, because you'll soon be like Judas stealing from God's purse, if you'll steal from the employee's purse or the boss's purse or whoever. So verse seven are all, basically those are negative criteria. Not of this, not of this, not of this. Verse eight goes to positive criteria. A lover of hospitality—that just uh, Philo Xenon, which just means you love strangers. Uh, what it means is you open your home. You love to have people over. Which means introverts and hermits won't ever be in leadership. How can you help people if you won't open your house to them? So if you feel like you're called, you got to open your house. Now if your house is a dump, go back to First Timothy three, where it talks about your life should be cosmotic or in order and have a clean house. Nothing about what you do at home should be embarrassing or shameful. It doesn't mean you have to have the biggest house, the biggest apartment, the biggest house trailer, but you ought to be able to invite people in and want to have them over because they don't care about where you live. They just love that you would have them over in the first place. A lover of good men, but good men, men is not there just good things or a lover of what is good. Uh, Sober I like this word We need to focus on it quickly Wise control of every thought Instinct and emotion So we're dealing with someone Who's emotionally mature Mentally mature Not one we would say Given to vain imaginations Or conspiratorial thoughts Or every third day You think the pastor's mad at you Or every fifth day You think the other elder family's mad at you We don't have time for that foolishness that's child's play. And so this sober here in the King James, I believe it's sophronio, is a wise control of every thought, instinct, and emotion. We must also be just, that is, upright. Someone who gives respect to men and reverence toward God. So that's an upright and just person. They must be holy. Imagine that. Holy. That elders should be holy? Yes, Temperate. This is another term or another synonym for self-controlled, but it means disciplined and full control of one's self, possessing inner strength to control one's desires and actions. So we're dealing with a very mature person who can control their appetites. As hateful as it's going to sound, I don't think I could promote a morbidly obese person to leadership because it sets a bad example. <laughs> What is morbidly obese? What's something decided by BMI, body mass index, which has now been called racist last week in the news. BMI now is considered racist because everything is. But you know, when everything's racist, nothing is. But BMI is racist because it's based upon white desires. So whatever, moron, you just needed a PhD dissertation, you got it. And now how do we help people who are struggling with weight? This verse, this word chosen by the Holy Ghost It says that an elder is someone who's demonstrated the inner strength necessary to control one's desires and actions. In essence, their whole life is pretty buttoned down. They're disciplined mentally, emotionally, financially, in their home, with their family, because this is the work of Christ in our life. You can't live like the world and say Jesus is succeeding in you. And if Jesus isn't succeeding in you, we can't promote you to a place where others will follow because you'll lead them astray. And so I'm thankful to have criteria that's higher than I can achieve by myself. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Holding fast the faith, faithful word has been taught, so this means he's submitted to the leaders in his life. He has absorbed their doctrine. Not every church believes the same, but we're not all called to the same church, and I have no problem with Calvinists believing Calvinism and Baptists being anti-Holy Ghost, so they're not 100%, just a little bit percent. Uh, but if you're called there, then absorb their doctrine and hold it faithfully. Don't sow discord among them. If you don't disagree with our core tenets, go away and find a church to serve in but wherever you've been called, absorb that doctrine, good doctrine, be faithful with it and then use it that by they may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayer. So this tells me that elders don't just have sound doctrine, they use it. That's key. They don't just take notes, write that down. <laughs> they don't just that's a joke. They don't just take notes, they use what they're taught because they're using it to exhort, and to convince. Exhort is kind of encouraging. The word convince there is egleko, to convict and rebuke. So we use sound doctrine to encourage and to rebuke. And who? The gainsayers. Now, who's that? That's the Judaizers in Crete. The Jews were everywhere. We're not against the Jews though it's very popular right now to be against the Jews. We're not against the Jews, but these were the Judaizers. This was more the rabbinical Jews who had set up so many walls around the law. They had new laws, more laws than Moses instituted, and they were trying to bring everybody under that burden that Jesus said uh, is impossible to lift. You want to make sure that you don't just know good doctrine. You know how to use it to encourage and to convict Verse 10, for there are many unruly and vain talkers. Many unruly and vain talkers. Let me say one thing real quick. I had a note here. Timothy's elders and therefore Ephesus didn't require such aggressive elders. Nowhere does it say in the Ephesians, excuse me, the Timotheus requirements of a bishop in 1 Timothy 3, nor with the deacons, do they have to be able to use the doctrine to convince and exhort. But why? Because Titus is in a hostile land. He has Judaizers and just gross pagans around him. His elders need to be a little bit more aggressive. Timothy's elders needed to be a little bit more nuanced. Ephesus was a little highfalutin, a little bit more Greek philosophical. It wasn't the wild, wild west. It was a little bit more posh. So you don't need ruthless, cutthroat, tomahawk-slinging elders, which are authorized in Crete. Now, be able to do it if you need to, but All your leadership is constantly doing is adjusting to the needs at hand. If you're in a religious region, you don't need folks hugging people all the time. But if you're in a broken down region, you need folks hugging people all the time. So we got to be wise as serpents. We got to know how to adjust. If you're a one hit wonder, you're going to only go one place. Verse 10 through 16 describes the Cretan opposition which is both the Cretan pagans and the Judaizers. And it's interesting to note the Cretan opposition, their characteristics are antithetical to the eldership requirements. And you see that the requirements for Cretan eldership were leaning heavily against Cretan sin. If, if let's say... Uh, So we were in Botswana years ago, celebi Pikwi, a little mining town, a copper mine near the Zim border. And that that region had a very high sexual trauma rape incident rate. By, I think, Mark Donald, Pastor Mark Donald's estimate, most women, over half the women had been raped. Because the juju wives' tale was that you could cure yourself of HIV by having sex with a virgin. So they were raping all these women trying to cure themselves of HIV because Botswana at the time, this is 2008, Botswana at the time had a 50-55% HIV rate. So a high incident of sexual trauma. That's going to require a different kind of ministry when one in two women has been raped. You're going to have to deal with them differently. You're going to have to train leadership differently because it's a different need. If you're in the inner city, there's a lot of gang, crime, and crack. You're going to have to deal with fatherlessness, another issue altogether. So hopefully you can see cultural differences coming out through ministry leadership. And if you want to know why I'm hard, it's because I have been groomed by God to pastor in this region. And if I pastor somewhere else, I'm going to be a different minister. You think I'm hard sometimes. You have no idea what I'm trying to fix and you're too cowardly to ask. See, even that, that's why you have to say cowardly, because you are. (laughs) You can go find a church that'll lie to you and make you feel good about being a failure, or you can find somebody to say, you can do better, let's do better, and you're better than this, so do better than this. The Cretans are described as unruly and loving, filthy lucre, And the requirements of the elders were to hate filthy lucre and to be disciplined. So you see that balance there. And that unruliness, that lazy gluttons, uh, that was all their uh, cultural reputation. We had Judaizers and Gentile pagans. And all these criteria prove that the gospel work should come into your life and make you different than the area you live in. If you can hold the gospel in one hand and your favorite culture in the other without it tearing you apart, you're going to break somewhere. And I would encourage you to let go of the culture you cling to, whether it's African-American culture, Southern culture, Cajun culture, Cuban culture, Puerto Rican culture, Monterey culture, Livingston culture, Upper Cumberland culture, hippie culture. You and I let go of all that because it's all dung that we might have Christ. And you say, Lord, Jesus, make me like... Jesus with a Cajun accent. <laughs> Make me like Jesus with a hippie swagger, you know. Make me like Jesus with a Cuban accent. We we can't hold both of them. We see that these leaders have to demonstrate the work of Christ in them has made them totally different from where they were raised. Until where they're raised is totally different. Verse 10 now. Many There are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. So we know who the problem is. Vain talkers and deceivers. Those that are of the circumcision. Judaizers whose mouths must be stopped. You see the aggression here. Who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. It would appear that the Judaizers had now taken on the flavor of the Cretans. One of the historical records say that their reputation is the Cretans were like greedy for money. They had this this, un, this average, uh, rapacious appetite for money, 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 money. And so now even the Jews who are trying to be devout are teaching these things in line with the Talmudic rabbinicism, and they're doing it for filthy lucre's sake. Verse 12, one of themselves, now he's talking about the whole nation, even a prophet of their own, that's uh, Epimenides, 6th century BC, said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts slow bellies. Let me give you a couple different translations on that. Evil beasts, well, uh, liars is liars. Our reputation should not be that of lying at all, not even exaggerations. We don't exaggerate. We don't lie. We tell the truth. Evil. Uh, evil beasts is the king James uh, some one translation says bad actors. Another translation says cruel animals another says evil brutes when that 's your cultural reputation, every guy is just a mean, ruthless individual, very much like the Wild West. You never know when somebody 's going to get mugged, shot, stabbed. This is what a nation to be called to. this is why paul said i 'm sure <laughs> Titus woke up in the morning, and there's the epistle. This is why I left you. I was on the first boat out of there, but I left you, so get to work. And he's like, what? what? But Tim, uh, Titus didn't need Timothy's encouragement. Now, slow bellies. This is the one. This is, I, got, I chuckled, and you'll hear why in a second. I'm not making up this translation. I chuckled. So please hear it. Don't be offended. I got this out of my massive commentary on the books of the Bible. Slow bellies is translated as lazy gluttons, idle gluttons, and my favorite, lazy fatties. (laughs) I'm not making it up. Longsmith translation. I don't even know who that guy was, but I love him. They were known as lazy fatties. (laughs) So there's nothing new under the sun. This was their cultural reputation for nearly 700 years. And it was time something changed. Now, we've also pointed out in times past, they had, I'm sure, good culture. They probably cared for their children. They probably were expert fishermen because it's an island. They probably had great crafts and were maybe known for pots and whatever. Like every culture has its positives. This is what came to the top of God's list. Not only God, but even the 6th century philosopher said, this is who we are. And we hadn't changed Probably because they took pride in it. The church leaders had to demonstrate the gospel had effectively delivered them from their own nation. How about we say it this way? The gospel has to demonstrate, or we have to demonstrate the gospel has effectively delivered us from our own last name. Our own upper Cumberland. Or wherever we're from. Whatever defines us. And you and I don't, we don't control, we don't get to stand and say, well, this is who I choose to be. No, no. You have to be like Jesus. We, you have to say, I choose to be like Jesus. I choose to be conformed to his image. There's going to be good things about your last name. You keep, there's going to be good things about the upper Cumberland culture you keep, but there are things that God hates about our region. There's things he hates about our regional pride and our regional culture or wherever you may be from. We're a pretty international church now. You have to be able to discern with unbiased eyes the wickedness of where you come from and reject it and quit defending it, quit trying to relate to it, be able to pinpoint and say, that's not God and I'm rejecting it. We ought to be looking more like Jesus altogether and not just compartmentalized whatever. Verse 13, this witness is true. So the apostle says, I bear witness. And the remedy... He says, this witness is true. The remedy, therefore, rebuke them sharply. Not, we just need to love them. We just need to love them. You know, they're that mean and they're lazy fatties because they just haven't been loved. We just need to show them the love of Jesus. You have to lisp on the Jesus. (laughs) We've come to this island to demonstrate the love of Jesus to these lazy fatties. (laughs) even though they're liars (laughs) and they're evil beasts, they just need Jesus. They need to see Jesus in you and Jesus in me and and, and then everything will be better. We'll pass the Coca-Cola around. I'd love to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. So let's read a Holy Ghost-inspired verse. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. That just doesn't sound like a hug. (laughs) <laughs> so, well, what's the Greek say, Pastor? Glad you asked, because I did a deep dive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the remedy was not to turn a blind eye, but to rebuke severely and rigorously. When I read the word rigorously, I think there was that Men in Black movie a couple years ago with Tommy Lee Jones, and there was that little pug that really was an alien, and he takes that dog... And the dog's like, I'm not going to tell you. And he's like, and the dog's like, "Ah, okay, okay, I'll talk, I'll talk, I'll talk. (laughs) To me, that's rigorous. So (laughs) if you're going to rebuke something rigorously, I'm going to grab you by your little fatty head. (laughs) And we're going to deal with you till you get this thing fixed. Now, there'll always be an easier church blowing smoke up your tailpipe and lying to you, but you're not going to be sound in the faith like verse 13 expects. I want to be sound in the faith. (laughs) the love of Jesus shows you where you're wrong the love of Jesus corrects you so you can be better Uh, the word rebuke here is to convict and point out that goes back to what we saw last week with 2 Timothy 4 or 3 that your job as a minister of the gospel is to show people in what way their life is wrong not everybody likes that so they go to the big church because the big guy's never going to point out people's sin. And you can hide among a thousand sets of eyes and it be diffused into the ether fog that was put out during the one song of worship. Or you can find somebody that will obey Titus because he knows his job description and he'll show you in what way your life is wrong and he'll say, stop, just stop. And the end result is to produce sound faith. Without severe rebuking, their faith would have been subpar. Anybody want subpar faith? I don't. I don't think subpar faith is going to get us to our finish line in this day. Three more verses real quick. Verse 14, not giving heed to Jewish fables... And commandments of men that turn from the truth. Now we're back to the Judaizers. This is, again, a reference to rabbinical Judaism or Talmudic Judaism. That was the same issue in Ephesus because this was the flavor of Judaism at the time. The pharisaical, rabbinical, Talmudic, it's all synonymous. It is... It is the law of Moses with all sorts of myths and genealogies and new laws upon laws to protect you from violating the original law in place, and it's exhausting. And that's why he's talking about don't give heed to Jewish fables. That's part of the Talmud. Nor the commandments of men. The Pharisees were called the wall builders. They called themselves the wall builders because what they endeavored to do was to build new walls around the law by providing new laws that prevented you from violating the law of Moses because they didn't want to do that. So, how do we prevent that? Let's put new walls, more gates in front of the gate so we don't accidentally go through the wrong gate. That's what this is a reference to. Don't give heed, basically, to Talmudic Judaism, don't give heed to Rabbinical Judaism. Because they're still studying the Old Testament at this time. That's all they have. So the early church is being built upon Genesis to Malachi. So the law of Moses is not the problem. It's Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Verse 15. Unto the pure, all things are pure. Now, I'm going to run out of time here because we're at like 25 after, but listen to me. The context of this is ceremonial Judaism. I give you permission and I have for years taken it out of context and used it for holiness. And the application fits. But the context is Talmudic Judaism because that's the previous verse. So it says to the pure all things, not all actions, all things, all foods, all clothing, all buildings. All things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Hence a requirement for a ceremonial washing, which is a reference back to the Talmud. Now, at the same time, for years, I've always taught it. When you're pure, everything's pure to you. Motives are pure. What somebody says is pure. But when you're impure, when you're paranoid, every, you're looking for a specter behind every shadow. When you're hyper-consumed of racism, everything's a racist thing. Because you're you're weird. Some of that's... Post-traumatic stress disorder, and you need help. But the application is in reference to the Jews who have now been tainted by all this pharisaical, rabbinic laws upon laws upon laws, and now they can't function without having to atone for something 15 times and take another bath. Uh, like we've covered in this time, they took a, a ceremonial bath every day to stay clean because they felt like they were dirty. And that's just, I mean, take a shower. We're not against that or baths, but ceremonially, that's a bit much. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled, that means dyed another color, and unbelieving, that means they're not Christians. Nothing's pure. You can't eat anything. You can't touch anything. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. I would come back at another time and teach this about how the heart works, but that's a different application for the same verse. Verse 16, they profess that they know God because they're Jews, but in their works they deny him because they're keeping the law and they're keeping ceremonies being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. Uh, Let me look at my notes real quick. Those who rejected Christ, the Judaizers, saw everything as unclean and in need of some ceremonial law. One translation says his dirty mind and rebellious heart color all that he sees and hears. So Paul's words here, the final verse of this chapter, and we'll close here, says they profess that they know God, but in works They deny him being abominable, disobedient, and reprobate. Paul's words are highly critical and very judgmental, and as well they should be. Abominable means they are detestable and repulsive. Paul found this whole segment of the Judaizing society as repulsive, and he's saying it publicly. And when he writes this epistle, Titus knows exactly the group of people he's talking about. Well, don't they need the love of Jesus? Shouldn't we just love them? Ask the Holy Ghost. Ask Paul, because he's commanded to get away from them and tell the church to stay away from them and don't even let them in. Disobedient is pretty much disobedient. There's no other way to translate that. And then reprobate, this one's a lengthy one, unfit, unqualified, worthless, useless, tested, judged, and found to be worthy of total rejection. That was Paul's judgment of the Judaizers by the Spirit of God. If you disagree, you're an apostate because you say God's Word is not inerrant nor inspired. That Word was selected by the Holy Spirit. You either believe Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, or you think this is a natural text, in which case I can't help you. But if he did write by the Holy Ghost, then the judgment of the Holy Spirit upon these Judaizers afflicting the island of Crete and the churches there was that they have been judged and found worthy of total rejection. And maybe that's why Paul says, so avoid them and rebuke those that would listen to them. Because as verse 11 says, they're subverting whole households. They're subverting whole households. And Paul's trying to make sure Christianity takes root. Amen. Amen. So I want you to see, these are two ministers talking and it's pretty raw. There's a lot of what the hypocrite would call gossip because we're talking about things and we're exposing the dangers. But all of this is designed so that little grandma can come and experience God. So little Bobby and little Jilly can come and have Sunday school and learn about Jesus on the flanogram, And so that the wolf is kept at bay and the heretic and the apostate is kept away from the local assembly. But there's a lot of work that goes on in private to keep the local church safe. So people can come in who are hungry. So hopefully the old fat white, upper Cumberland, religious Pentecostal who used to go to my church doesn't run off a guy with vulgarity tattooed on his neck who just got out of prison. It's so funny. She got offended because of vulgarity on her neck, on his neck, but she wasn't offended by the vulgarity in her heart. And I think God cares little about the vulgarity on the guy's neck when he's penitent, and he's more concerned about the, the intolerance in her heart. Ew, in my church? Won't be your church long. <laughs> Yeah. All right. That help us? Amen.